here we go. You're listening to Gerard and Friends. This week we're discussing The Plague by Albert Camus, part one. The Plague opens with the description of the novel setting. We find ourselves in the Algerian port city of Iran. We're told by an anonymous narrator that the city is like so many modern cities. The main concern of its residents is business, which makes all other matters, including love and death, seem like an inconvenience. Early in part one, we encounter unsettling images of a strange infestation of dying rats. Dr. Bernard Rue discovers one under his foot after he finishes an operation. His concern for the rat is mitigated by his preoccupation with his ailing wife, who shortly will be sent away to a sanitarium. But as the dying rat's number increase, he and others in the town begin to take notice. Indeed, whatever is killing the rats begins to claim human victims. As the crisis turns into an epidemic, we see how the city and the plague impact Dr. Rue and the people he encounters. Camus' classic work challenges the foundations of what we consider knowledge and understanding. As the crisis expands beyond the character's horizons, numbers and statistics are brought to the fore, and individual perspectives are called into question. No secret, Brandon. You chose this title. Uh, what was what was your reason for choosing the plague? So whatever it was, three four weeks ago, kind of when the the quarantine stuff started to get really talked about, you know, when people were starting to self quarantine before the government stuff came out, I I started thinking back, like everything else, right? We go to our own experience, and I try to think how I how can I put something interesting up on social media that is kind of funny, but also reminds people that I think I'm smarter than they are. And so I found this French copy of the cover of Camus' Plague, which I read. I I mean, I think it might have been a summer reading thing in high school. Maybe it was an entry-level college survey class that I read this book. But uh, I said, I'm going to post this online. And I think the caption said something like, anybody want to do a book club? had I known what was going to happen in the next month, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have realized at the time, or I didn't realize at the time how much a unintentional foresight and b probably less funny than I thought at the time that post was, but I posted it up there and people actually got excited. So here's where we are. Not because um, anybody was, was dying um, to hear what you and I have to say. In fact, most of the people, most of the time when you and I start talking, people start looking up at the ceiling. But, you know, I think this is a cool opportunity for people who love to read, who love to break down novels. I think there's a real applicability of, of this book that was written, I think, almost 80 years ago um, to what we're dealing with right now during a global pandemic. It's crazy. I mean, it is incredible how applicable this book is to right now. It almost reads like the newspaper headlines that we've read over the last few weeks. I mean, it's unraveling the exact same way for us with coronavirus. I think this book is actually going to say something to people right now. And I think it's actually going to be really interesting. Let's dive into it, man. Assuming people have read part one of the book, Mitch, the first three, four, five pages, really impactful as they would be in any kind of 
novel that you know novel first but also kind of the a philosophical novel that's that's laying out some level of allegory you, what'd you see in those first couple of pages the story opens with this setting uh north africa which you'd think would be some sort of exotic setting but he paints the picture that this is just like any other city but then in these few pages he gives us two ideas that are going to run through the entire novel first of all he describes life in oran in terms of work, love, and death. There's a lot of ways that you can describe life in a city. I mean, you can describe the way people move, the way transportation is set up. You can describe architecture. You can describe the foliage, the trees that I'm looking at right now outside my window. But to describe it in terms of work, love, and death, and to really emphasize the importance of work, I think connects it to a modern audience where work has become so ubiquitous. Work is everywhere. We work more hours than we ever thought we would. We take fewer vacations. So when he's talking about work as the driving force of life in Oran, anybody in the modern world will say, wait, that's the driving force of life in the city where I live. And when he talks about love and death being an inconvenience, or something to be habituated in the service of work. It's such a bizarre thing. And yet we look at our life today and when you're old, we put you in a home. We don't get married until we're 35 years old. We don't have kids until it's almost too late. Both of those are in the service of business too. We put them in a home, but that's big business, especially in my world and development. A bunch of guys, including my former employers, got into that business because baby boomers are aging. So there's a, there's a mechanization, there's a business structure, even in terms of the periphery of these other kind of human experiences. Yeah, yeah. And yet those two things, love and death, are the things that really allow us at times uh, we only get glimpses of this in our life, but at times, love and death have the power to make us stop and say, what are we working for? And so I think these three elements are in constant tension in our lives. And these are the three elements that he uses to describe life in Iran. I think it makes it so easy for us to connect with that North African city. I, I I love, when I think of Iran in the novel, I compare it to Long Beach. That is a city that is on the California coast, beautiful city, right? Should be much more beautiful, but yeah. its beauty has been taken over from a, from a utilitarian standpoint as the biggest shipping port, I think in America or maybe just on the West, Western side of the country or whatever it is. But the, the, the supplication of business over everything else is really, uh, 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 that's how I picture that city. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And if you actually, if you Google images of both cities, I think they look very similar. I mean, the, the water is pristine and yet the thing that your eye is drawn to is not the water, but the huge mechanisms, the, the reefs and the, the barriers that allow the ships to come in and the, the cranes on the skyline. Both cities have that. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but from an applicability standpoint or kind of a parallel to what we're experiencing today, as we talked about sooner, you talked about asking these kind of 
for lack of a better term, existential questions of why are we working so much for X, Y, and Z? And what the plague, and granted, we're talking about the first couple pages of the book, the plague hasn't been sprung yet. But what we're looking at in our current society is people asking those questions. You have friends, I have friends that are asking themselves that question. Or the, the common refrain is, I've never had more people say hi to me on the street. I've never seen more people out walking. And so in the midst, I think what Camus is setting up is what happens I think it's an easy answer to say I'm working 14 hours a day so that my child has a better life than me, so that I can attain this happiness that's out there. If I do A, B, C, and D over the course of a career, I will be more happy. But what the plague in a metaphorical sense in the, inside the novel or our current pandemic, it rips those apart. So, okay, where, where is our human experience now that the path isn't straight, that the train is off the rails? Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, though, right after he brings up this, this picture of life in Oran, he asks another existential question, and he himself, it should be noted, doesn't like that phrase existentialism. Camus is not a fan of existentialism per se, but he asks the question, what is knowledge? What is understanding? So after he brings up those three facets of life, he says, this narrator that's writing, that's telling the story says, look, I'm writing a history and the three things that make history history are one, firsthand experiences. My own eyes, my own ears, that's a key part of understanding history. Number two is the experience and the accounts of others. So what you say that you saw, what you heard. And then the third thing that makes a historian a historian, according to the narrator in these opening pages, are documents, documented evidence. And throughout this story, you're going to see documents reveal numbers, statistics. Today, we might add charts and graphs. But we, we have two very different kinds of knowledge. On one hand, whether it's the firsthand or the secondhand experience, it's eyes and ears. It's what you see. It's what you experience. The other kind of knowledge is this abstract knowledge of stats, numbers, facts, charts. And so Camus is... Camus bell curves. Is, bell curves, as they're popular today on social media and in the news. Flatten the curve is something that Camus probably would have uh, really rolled his eyes at. In some, in some sense, he would have said, my goodness, like, how does a flattened bell curve have the power to change our ways of acting and interacting in the world? And yet me telling you what I saw doesn't change a thing in your life. It's incredible. So th that's the tension that he's really drawing out. Those two triplets, remember work, love, and death, and first-hand accounts, second-hand accounts, and documented evidence, those two things are all packed into those early pages, and they give us an idea of what it is that we're going to encounter, what the tensions are that we're going to encounter in this story throughout. It's interesting, and I think it's important to note, we don't know who the narrator is yet. 
The narrator is anonymous, which, you know, you can draw a couple different conclusions, right? You could say the narrator is omniscient, you know, obviously a, a connection with the divine, right? Somebody that knows everything, that sees everything, which would lead you to believe that it's a truthful account. But it also could say, wait a second, like, now we're immediately taking in information from a narrator that we believe is trustworthy. We don't know who this guy is. And why do we take his word for it? Because he's providing an eyewitness account? Because he's the one that's writing the novel? Because it's written. We don't know who he is, but he's written it, so we must accept it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm saying he, it may not even be a he. So these individual characters, in the way that we're introduced to them and who they are, there's not a lot of um, superfluous characters. There's zero superfluous dialogue. And so who are the people that we're introduced to? We're introduced to first, a doctor, scientific knowledge, right? Scientific knowledge, much like you talked about, which is, you know, in the, that frame of knowledge, what are the details? What can we experiment with? What's the data, right? Then we're introduced to the reporter. Now that's journalistic media. That's first and secondhand accounting. Then we're introduced to a character that may not necessarily fall into to that early knowledge paradigm, but Father Panelo which represents obviously theology, right? A larger belief system uh, under which a society operates. So we have scientific knowledge, journalistic media, and theology. And then lastly, we have the government. We have these four kind of pillars of where we get our information inside of a society. I would cynically say too, what's interesting is you had one for scientific knowledge, one for media, one for theology and the government gets like five and they seem to be the least functioning people out there. They, they've actually done the least to either report or help people or bring any kind of action. Well, let's, let's examine how those characters were brought into the story. So Dr. Rue, the first thing he does, he steps on a rat. So you get the sense that his knowledge comes from feeling. There's something about his sense of feeling that allows him to understand, or at least to first encounter this plague. Uh, the second character you mentioned was the journalist. And the journalist is introduced to someone with keen sight. And so you sense that his knowledge as a secondhand observer, someone who's telling you what he saw, not your own experience, it's important for him to be able to see. The third person you mentioned the father, the, the priest, is the only person who's introduced wearing glasses. And so it's clear Camus is saying, look, this guy's sight is not his own. He's looking through the lens of an artificial apparatus. He's looking at life through someone else's lens. I didn't pick that up at all. That's good. That's really good. And then the last people that you mentioned, the, one, the bureaucrats that are bumbling around, they have the documents. When they're introduced, they have the documents, they have the stats, the numbers. And so they're concerned not with individuals. They're concerned with this big macro picture. What happens if we release information? What happens if we tell a certain story and a huge number of Oranians loses it. I mean, just totally loses their minds. We lose control. And so those four characters or groups of characters 
um, also sort of symbolize how we know things and what that type of knowledge leads us to be able to do. It's interesting. I forgot one character. I forgot one character and I forgot, I forgot the first casualty in the book. It's the businessman. It's the apartment owner slash doorman, et cetera, et cetera, which I mean, I think you can unpack in a couple of different ways, right? We just got done talking about the focus on business. This is a guy not concerned or only concerned with the rats as it affects his commercial interests, right? And two, he's the first person Camus kills off, which I think, you know, is probably not unintentional. Now, let me ask you a question because you've brought this up before and, and I'm curious about your take on this. You talk about allegory. You talk about symbolism. Is there any symbolism in the rats themselves? What do you see when you see these characters infesting the city? Well, so I had a couple of thoughts and I'm going to try to connect them. Okay. The first was in researching, kind of doing the, the pre who is Camus stuff that, that we've talked about. He was a French national born in Algeria. And so these people were looked down upon by the French because they left and they're not true French nationals but they were also kind of hated in Algeria because they were only 10% of the population. They were Christian slash Catholics in a Muslim country and they supported um, kind of the imperial colonization. And so there's a name, I'm not going to try to pronounce it in France, but basically these people, these French nationals, but that were born in Algeria were called black feet or the black foot. And basically they kind of had no home and were, weren't liked anywhere, not in their home nation that they didn't live in, but not in the home nation that they actually were lived and born in. They weren't a part of. And so I think it's really interesting. You talked about the doctor stepping on the rat with his foot, presumably a black rat. And so you have this kind of weird, and maybe this is like way off the deep end, but you have this black foot um, introduction there, right? Additionally, the rats were an inconvenience, like we talked about earlier. It was an inconvenience to business, but there's not any dialogue that says, what's the root cause of this rat problem we have? And even when the rats start dying, they're kicked to the side, they're shoveled up. And that'd be fine if this was a medieval allegory, but this is an allegory set in 1941. We know about infectious disease. And so it seems like an almost conscious decision on Camus' part not to connect what's happening with these rats to what's happening to, or to what could potentially happen to the larger human population. And therefore you ask the question of who are these, who are these rats, right? Where, who do these rats stand for in this allegorical society, right? Are they the black feet from the Algerians? Are they Algerian nationals themselves in a larger existential kind of view are they the capital T capital O the other that we hear about in Camus and Sartre um, throughout kind of your traditional existentialist school of thought and so not only do I think the rats are interesting in how they're described but I think it begs the question of what kind of society allows this type of rat infestation to fester and only begins to care about it once it starts to kill people or things or beings that actually matter right? The rats don't matter. But when people start to die that stop business, it matters.
and I will say it, I, I don't think it's for this episode because we haven't gotten there yet inside the novel, right? But I'm gonna guess, and I haven't read ahead, I'm gonna guess we're gonna start seeing some scapegoat narratives inside the novel, and I will tell you, as we're doing this podcast, I got a text from a friend of mine who said, why are there these people such idiots walking down to the store and everyone just out and about with no mask on? And it, it, it's this idea of it's always the other. It's always somebody else's responsibility for the plague. There's not a reflective look back on ourselves, right? And the landlord, the first person that dies, he, he just is constantly, when Dr. Rue goes by him, he's bitching about the rats. He's like, yeah, these yeah. damn rats, these damn rats. It's his last dying word, these damn rats. Not, I, I ran a building that allowed for an unbelievable, I'm a slumlord, and I allowed for an infestation of rats. There's no humility there. There's no self-criticism. And so I think that kind of narrative both in the novel and in what we're experiencing today has to and of course you and i read a bunch of renee girard so we're prejudiced to going here but it has to lead towards some scapegoating you've been listening to gerard and friends tune in next week for part two of the plague